better. Okay, I'm going to have to wave with one hand this morning. Okay, let's give this a bash. Okay, as I said, we're uh, looking at the, the crucifixion as we move towards it. And in this moment, we're going to be looking at this morning in Mark uh, 14. Jesus is carrying the weight of what is to come with him. And so, um, just as we start in prep, I was reminded of one of my favorite songs, this hymn uh, called It Is Well. And uh, I love the story of It Is Well. It talks about a man who went through incredible sorrows as he wrote the song. It was written by a guy called Horatio uh, Spafford in 1873. And what he went through was this. Uh, first, in 1871, his four-year-old son died of pneumonia. And they were struggling with this grief. And later that same year, he was living in the city of Chicago. And there was this great Chicago fire that burned down the whole city. And he lost his whole business and all his income and suffering in that way. And uh, over the next two years, he started rebuilding a bit. And uh, then in 1873, he was a Christian and an elder in his church. And he was good friends with a guy by the name of D.L. Moody, a, a fairly well-known evangelist. And uh, he was doing crusades in England. So his family was going to go and join to help those efforts in England. And by that stage, his family was his wife, Anna, and they had four daughters. And uh, so they were going to get on a ship. And there were about 300 people on the ship that were traveling to England. And uh, at the last moment, a business a deal came up and he had to stay behind to uh, figure it out. So he sent his family on ahead of him. And what happened in the coming weeks is that ship collided with another ship and sank. And his four daughters died. Uh, his wife did survive. And uh, later on, he, he, the story is told that he gets on a ship and uh, comes to England anyway. And when he gets over the point where, that, where his daughters died, the, the captain tells him this is the point. And the story goes that it's, it's in this moment that he writes this song, It Is Well. And uh, the first verse says this. It says, When peace like a river attendeth my way, and when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say it is well, it is well with my soul. Isn't that beautiful? Whether I'm in deep sorrow or deep peace, it's well with my soul. Why? What reason does he give? Well, he sort of tells us in the next verse. He says, Though Satan should buffet, though trials should come, let this blessed assurance control that Christ has regarded my helpless estate and has shed his own blood for my soul. That's his hope. That's his comfort. In times of sorrow, he has a redemption in the Son, Jesus. And today, that's the good news for us as well. The work of Jesus is not partial. It's total. It covers everything. It's the good news that our sin has been forgiven, that our guilt has been taken away, that our sorrows have even been dealt with. That death, death itself has lost its sting. There is no brokenness and no pain that gets left untouched by the power of the cross. That's the good news of Jesus. And so as we enter into the story, as we enter into the sorrows Jesus is carrying for us, the good news is that he took our sorrows so that we could get his joy. And it all comes from the gospel. So we're going to read together. It's Mark 14, 32 to 52. Um, if you don't have your Bible with you, it'll be on the screen. And uh, let's read together from verse 32. Then they came to a place named Gethsemane, and he told his disciples, Sit here while I pray. He took Peter, James, and John with him, and he began to be deeply distressed and troubled. And he said to them, I'm deeply grieved to the point of death. 
remain here and stay awake. He went a little further, fell to the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. He said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will. Then he came and found them sleeping. He said to Peter, Simon, are you sleeping? Couldn't you stay awake one hour? Stay awake and pray that you won't enter uh, into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Once again, he went away and prayed, saying the same thing. And again, he came and found them sleeping because they could not keep their eyes open. They did not know what to say to him. Then he came a third time and said, are you still sleeping and resting? Enough. The time has come. See, the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Get up. Let's go. See, my betrayer is near. While he was still speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, suddenly arrived. Uh, With him was a, a mob with swords and clubs from the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders. His betrayer had given them a signal. The one I kiss, he said, he's the one. Arrest him and take him away under God. So when he came, immediately he went up to Jesus and said, Rabbi, and kissed him. They took hold of him and arrested him. One of those who stood by drew his sword, struck the high priest's servant, and cut off his ear. Jesus said to them, have you come out with swords and clubs as if I were a criminal to capture me? Every day I was among you teaching in the temple and you didn't arrest me. But the scriptures must be fulfilled. Then they all deserted him and ran away. Now a certain young man wearing nothing but a linen cloth was following him. They caught hold of him, but he left the linen cloth behind and ran away naked. That's God's word for us this morning. And if you're taking notes this morning, I'm keeping it simple. I've got two points. We're going to talk about the sorrows of Jesus. We're going to be unpacking this text. And then we're going to be talking about the freedom of the cup and how this good news of the empty cup changes our lives and applies to us day by day. So let's look at the sorrows of Jesus. In this moment, this is Jesus' last night before his death. He has preached his last sermon. He's performed his last miracle. He has just had uh, his last meal with his disciples in the upper room, the Last Supper. And uh, his three years of ministry is now reaching a climax, and uh, he's about to head towards his death. And so in his anxiety and his sorrows and in the weight that he's carrying, he takes his disciples with him to this garden of Gethsemane likely owned by a ministry friend. Uh, It was like an olive press and likely walled off. It it was a place he would retreat and pray. This was a moment of of a retreat and prayer time for Jesus in this weight that he's carrying. And what's happening here is that something is going on. Something is happening to Jesus. He knows that he's going to be arrested and beaten and flogged. And he's feeling the weight of everything he would go through. And so it tells us in verse 33 and 34 what Jesus is experiencing. It says that he began to be deeply distressed and troubled. He said, uh, Jesus even says, I am deeply grieved. To the point of death, he says. And we see later on in the passage, it says as he was praying, he now fell down. It's like Jesus is carrying the weight of a burden on him. And we see that again in that he didn't just pray once, he prayed three times, pleading with his father 
when we see Jesus is just in deep distress and trouble and grief. And so what is the sorrow about? Let's just take a moment to enter into our Savior's shoes here. What is this sorrow all about? Well, let's look at the different aspects for a moment. He's, he's carrying the sorrow of betrayal. Uh, one of the 12 disciples, Judas, is about to um, betray Jesus. And Judas has made a, a deal with the chief priests and the, and the religious leaders that they're going to pay him some money and he's going to come and betray uh, Jesus. He's going to show them who to arrest. He's going to lead the mob to Jesus. And this, of course, doesn't surprise Jesus at all. He knows what's in uh, Judas. He knows what's coming. He knows uh, that he's going to get arrested and betrayed. He even called it a little bit earlier at the dinner they've just had. He said, one of you is going to betray me. He knows what's coming. Yet it still breaks his heart. And uh, there's an interesting word here where Judas says, all right, this is the sign. I'm going to go up to him and I'm going to kiss him. And that's, that's the guy. That's the sign of who this guy is that you must arrest. And that word there in the original language for kiss, it's not the normal sort of greeting that you would peck on the cheek. It's the word used for an intensified kiss, like a kiss that you would give when you really have missed someone or, or that you really love someone. It's, it's more like an embrace kind of kiss. And you can imagine Jesus knowing just how false this was, how fake this was. This absolute mockery of an affectionate son. Carrying this betrayal of a friend who would do this to him. He's also carrying the pain and the sorrow of abandonment. It says that the disciples ran away. It says they all deserted and ran away. Again, just before this passage... Uh, where Jesus tells Peter, you're going to, de to deny me, what does Peter do? He says, no, I will, I will never do that. And all the disciples say, no, we'll never deny you. We'll even die for you, they say. Yet here they are, running away when the time's gotten tough. They've, they've run away. They've deserted him. When, when he, his mates needed him the most, Jesus has run away. And it's very interesting. At the very end there, there's last two verses. Verses 50 and 51 tells the story of this random guy who was following the mob from a distance and the mob sees him and they chase him and they had to leave his dressing gown behind and run away naked. I don't know about you, that's a pretty awkward journey home. And we don't know much about who this young guy is. It just seems like a random detail that's been dropped into the story and uh, there's been lots of speculation. But most of the scholars in the commentary say that this is actually probably Mark, the writer of this gospel. He kind of puts it in here as a sort of confession to say, yes, the disciples uh, deserted Jesus, but so did I. I also abandoned him. He is sort of agreeing that in, our, in Jesus' hour of greatest need, his disciples were nowhere to be found. And Jesus is surely carrying the pain of this abandonment as well. He knows as well what's to come in his trial and, and uh, what he would go through in the courts and as he got beaten and and uh, ultimately murdered on the cross. He, he's carrying the sorrows of his injustices and, and violences that would happen to him, that he would endure. He's going to get an unfair trial. He's going to get beaten. He's going to be killed. And even the Roman authorities in charge of uh, saying, yes, this can all happen, would say, this man is in innocent. There's no, there's no uh, just cause for what's going to happen here. Yet they feared an uprising, so they let it happen. And so Jesus is carrying the, the pain of these injustices as well. But friends, here's, here's the, the, the center point of this morning, is that the sorrow Jesus is carrying more than anything else 
is about this word, the cup. That's what we're going to be looking at this morning. And Jesus is carrying the sorrow of becoming sin for us more than anything else. Jesus knows he's going to die, but, and he knows his death is going to be for a purpose, and it's not going to be for a political one or a social one. It's ultimately going to be for a spiritual one. Jesus is going to die for our sin. And uh, Galatians 3.13 says that uh, when Jesus was put on the cross, the curse of sin was put on him. And he died for that curse of sin. He became sin. And we also see it. What happened on the cross, 2 Corinthians 5.21 puts it well for us. As Jesus became sin, it says this, God made the one, this Jesus, who did not know sin, to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Something profound is happening on the cross, and Jesus is feeling the weight of it right now, in this moment. He knows he's going to become sin. He knows he's going to take it all onto himself. It's a good news for us that he died for us. And so he's considering these things and he, he falls to the ground and he prays in his desperation. He says, Father, take this cup from me. Take this cup from me. This whole passage this morning is, is about the cup. This cup is why Jesus is so deeply grieved and so troubled. This cup is why he's running to God in prayer. It's all about this cup. This, this cup is the center point of what's happening here. And it's a central idea to the gospel as well. And so what is this cup all about? Let's just look at uh, defining it. This imagery of the cup comes from uh, the Old Testament, usually in the prophetic books. And it is used to describe God uh, pouring out his justice for sin. And so it's sometimes used as a like sort of warning where they'll say, don't do that or, or else you'll have to drink the cup of God's wrath. Or, or sort of uh, where guys have turned away from God and run away from him, they'll sort of use it as a judgment. They have uh, rebelled against God and will drink the cup of God's wrath. It's this imagery of uh, what God does to sin. He has to and he will deal with sin. And so there's this idea of God satisfying his justice, because he's a just God, in that he has to pour out his wrath for sin. And yet, what are we getting told here would happen for us in the gospel? Jesus is saying, I'm going to drink this cup for you so that you don't have to. I'm going to drink this cup. I'm going to drink the cup of God's wrath. So he's pleading, God, take this cup from me. But then he reveals the Father's will. He says, yet not my will, but your will be done. And as we sit here this morning, we have to just come to terms with this and just feel the weight of this again, my friends. Each one of us should have our own cup to drink, right? We should have our own cup to drink for what we've done, for how we've messed up. Yet if you're a believer, the good news this morning is that your cup has been drunk. Jesus took it for you, and he drank it right to its dregs. It is finished. And the theological word here used to describe what's happening in, in, when we talk about the cup is this word propitiation, that Jesus is the propitiation for our sins, that we deserve to pay for our sins. But no, Jesus paid for our sins on our behalf. He died on the cross for our sins in our place. He's the propitiation for his sins. And uh, we're going to look just now at, at a text from Isaiah 53 that describes what Jesus did for us 
And uh, it uses this phrase, man of sorrows. We sang that beautiful song, man of sorrows, or um, some translations put it, man of suffering. It describes Jesus, that in this moment we're even seeing in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus describing who he is as this man of sorrows. Isaiah prophesied all those years ago that this would be Jesus, the man of sorrows, who would take all the sin and sorrows and pain of the world unto himself for us and suffer in our place. Look what it says, Isaiah 53, verse 1 to 6. Who has believed what we have heard? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up, this is Jesus, before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He didn't have an impressive form or majesty that we should look at him. No appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men. A man of suffering or man of sorrows. Who knew, he knew what sickness was. He was like someone people turned away from. He was despised and we didn't value him. Yet he himself bore our sickness and he carried our pains. But we in turn regarded him stricken, struck down by God and afflicted. But here's the good news. He was pierced because of our rebellion, crushed because of our iniquities. Punishment for our peace was on him. And we are healed by his wounds. We all went astray like sheep. We have all turned to our own way, and the Lord has punished him for the iniquity of us all. What a beautiful description of the gospel, isn't it? That the punishment we deserve, Jesus takes it for us on, on himself. We don't have to carry that anymore. We don't have to fear impending doom. If you're a believer, it's not coming for you because it came for him. It came for him. You're free. This morning, if you're maybe taking steps considering Jesus, just consider this. What he does for you, your, your guilt gets removed. Your shame gets taken away. Your sins get forgiven. Your punishment gets put on him. You don't have to deal with it. You get healed by his wounds. This amazing gift to us. And yet this morning, and I just want to be honest with you, uh, I believe this is true, but I doubt it a lot. I sometimes still live like there's something left in that cup for me to drink. Aren't you the same? I know I am. I still live as if God's wrath is out to get me, and I still have, I'll have something left to answer for. And yet here's the good news. There is not one single drop in that cup left for you to drink. If you're in Christ, that cup is empty, my friends. That cup is empty. All of our doubts get killed when we remember the cup. And so if you remember anything from today, this is, this is the words. His cup is our confidence. His cup is our confidence. If you've ever wondered where you stand with God, if you've ever wondered uh, or felt inadequate for His love, or just wondered that what it's going to be like one day when you stand before God and you're not sure how it's going to go, His cup, if you're a believer, His cup is your confidence. You can know where you stand. And so just this morning, for the remainder of our time, I, I want to look at the freedom of the cup. Because this cup is empty. That's the truth for us. But so often we, we live like there's something left for us to drink, right? So how can we live in the sufficiency of that empty cup? How can we live in the sufficiency of that empty cup? And uh, this might be a bit lame, right? Um, but I hope it's somewhat memorable. Uh, we're in COVID times, and you've likely taken a COVID test, and sometimes we, we take a PCR test, right? 
I'm just stealing those letters and coming up with my own acronym to kind of help us. This morning we're going to look at a spiritual PCR test, all right? To help us know if we're living in the freedom of the empty cup. Here's the first letter, P, PCR test. The P stands for peace. Are we convinced that we have peace with God? See, the good news of the empty cup is that there is no wrath left for you to receive. Jesus has taken it. Jesus has taken it. There's nothing coming to you. There is nothing left uh, for you to pay for. It's been paid in full. And I think sometimes we live like God is just a bit angry with us. He's just a, a little bit disappointed in us. Like, I know I'm forgiven, but there's a limit to his grace, right? Like in the scriptures, Jesus says, 70 times 7 will I forgive you. But I'm well into the 500, so maybe like grace has run out. Do you feel like God's just like a little bit disappointed with you? Like you're just a bit of a failure spiritually. And that his face as he looks at you is, is, is one of a frown. I think we live like that sometimes. Like there's just an undertone to our relationship with God. Like we're living under the spiritual cloud and there's a tension between God and us because we're just such a disappointment to Him. What do you do when this is how your heart is feeling? How do you remind yourself, if you're a Christian, that you have peace with God? There's nothing left to answer for. What do you do? You gospel yourself. Let's, let's do that together this morning. Romans 8 verse 1, it says, Now there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There's no condemnation. And yet our hearts will condemn us, right? Our hearts will condemn us and tell us how fallen we are, how sinful we are, how unlovable we are, how God would never pour out His grace toward us. Friends, that cup is empty. And that is a lie. I'll just nuance this here. There is a difference between condemnation and conviction, right? Conviction is from the Spirit. That helps us know that we are sinful and that, you know, we have to run to God. And that's what conviction does. Conviction helps us run to God. But condemnation causes us to hide from God. It makes us feel like we still have something to answer for. It makes us wonder and question and doubt that grace will be sufficient for us. And that's just simply not biblical. So I want to encourage you this morning, when your heart condemns you, what's your battle plan? What are you going to do? What scriptures are you going to quote? What are you going to remind yourself about? One option this morning is to remind yourself that this cup is an empty cup. It's an empty cup. There is nothing left for you to drink. But not only do our hearts condemn us, we also know that battle is spiritual and Satan is an accuser. And he comes and accuses us. And he'll, he's a really good accuser. He's really good at what he does. But you know what? Jesus is so much better at what he does, what he has done and will do. Let's read together what is in store and what has been done for Satan on the cross and will be finalized at Christ's return. Let's look at it. Revelation 12, 10. It says this. Then I heard a loud voice in heaven say, The salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have now come. Because the accuser of our brothers and sisters, who accuses them before our God day and night, what's happened to him? He's been thrown down. Thrown down. The devil gets trampled. He gets killed. 
He has no accusation to give. All his accusations have no leg to stand on. Why? Because the cup is empty. It's been drunk. There's, there's nothing there. I can just imagine the disciples listening into this prayer of Jesus and thinking, what's this guy talking about a cup? Like, we know what the cup means. Is he really saying he's going to do that for us? And then yet deserting Jesus and abandoning him and what God would do to restore his disciples to him and help them follow him again. And it was a bit later that one of these disciples, the now the apostle John, knowing that our hearts are going to struggle to believe this, that we have peace with God and that our hearts will condemn us, he speaks into this and he reminds us of what we need to do. 1 John 3, 19 to 23, it says this, this is how we know we will, uh, we will know, this is how we will know that we belong to the truth, and this is how we will reassure our hearts before him whenever our hearts condemn us. He says, for our God is greater than our hearts, and we know, he knows all things. Dear friends, if our hearts don't condemn us, we have confidence before God and receive whatever we ask from him because we keep his commands and do what is pleasing in his sight. So, What's, what's he saying? What do we do when our hearts condemn us? Look what it says. Now this is the command, that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another as he commanded. The hearts condemn us. What do we do? We remember Jesus. We proclaim the gospel over ourselves and each other. We, we preach it. We beat it into our heads until we remember it. A guy by the name of Robert Machane, he says, for every one look at your sin, we need to take ten looks at Christ. We beat it into our heads. You are forgiven. You are at peace. You will not answer for the sin that has been taken for you. You will not answer for it. My friends, his cup is our confidence. We are at peace with God. There is nothing left for you to pay. That's the P, PCR test. We're at peace with God. The C stands for communion. Are we convinced we have communion with God? Now, we spoke about now we're at peace with God. Jesus has set us free from the judgment we get. And uh, that peace is about what Christ has saved us from. We get saved from the wrath of God, but we also get saved into something. And what are we getting saved into? He saves us into a relationship with himself. We have communion with him. He's, we've been united to himself in the gospel. Something has happened to who we are at our deepest level when we become a Christian. What's happened? Again. Our brother John telling us the gospel here. 1 John 3, 1. He says, See what great love the Father has given us that we should be called God's children. And we are. Like he says, and we are. Because he knows, like, we're going to doubt this. Like, there's a double emphasis. This is who you are, and we really are that. Like, believe it. How is this possible? What's happened here? You just think about the cup again, my friend. What happens with the cup? Why is Jesus uh, sweating here in, in the garden as he thinks about drinking this cup? Because he knows what's going to happen when he drinks this cup. He's going to become sin, and the Father's going to turn his face away from him. And he's going to lose. He's going to be rejected by God because he took all our sin unto himself. The amazing news for us this morning is that Jesus gets rejected so that we get accepted. We get accepted. We don't need to wonder where we stand. We stand in communion with him. And uh, the scriptures talk about what we get welcomed into. This is what's happening. We're getting welcomed into communion with God. 
It says we have a, a room in the Father's house. He's preparing a room for us. There is a room waiting for us. I don't know about you guys, but some days I'm prone to think, all right, like I can believe I have a room in the house, but surely like it's in the basement uh, and there's damp and it's wet and I, I'm sleeping in the, in the slums kind of thing. The gospel is just so much better than we tend to think. It's just so much more than we could ever imagine because it's so much more than we ever deserve. We don't deserve this. It's the ultimate gift of grace to us that God would call us his children. And he treats us like a father. We get welcomed in. I think one of the ways we get this more right, and this is maybe just a, a help from our text this morning, is that we live in light of the right garden. What do I mean by that? I hope this isn't too cryptic, but in, in the Bible, there's two, at least two really important garden moments. And we can live in either one. We can live in the Garden of Eden, where things started off well. God created the world, and then yet the fall came, and sin entered the world, and we all end, uh, lived in the curse of sin. Uh, and when we live, even as Christians, we can sort of live there a bit where uh, we're still ashamed for our still sin. We still can't quite believe that we would have been forgiven. We're still carrying this sort of curse of sin within us that our guilt and our shame is just eating away at us. And we can't believe that God would truly forgive us. Or we can live in the other garden. This garden that we're talking about this morning, this garden of Gethsemane, where Jesus tells us, I'm going to drink this cup. I'm going to experience all the shame for sin so that you don't have to. I'm going to experience all the guilt for your sins so that you don't have to. I'm going to take all of, of the rejection so that you can have all of the grace of God. We can live in light of the right garden. We can preach this to our souls. If we're struggling to believe we're really forgiven, let's remember the right garden, the curse in the Garden of Eden, is coming undone in the Garden of Gethsemane. That's the good news for us this morning. Are we convinced we have communion with God? So as we close, the last one, PCR test, peace, communion. And are we resting? R is for resting. Are we resting in the finished work of Jesus? I think we've spoken about it a bit today, but what's the application for us? Well, I think it offends us a bit, but the application is that there's not much we can do. <laughs> Our application is that we have to just simply trust that Christ has done it all. There's no way we can work back uh, or, or pay back Jesus for this amazing gift. There is no such thing as works of debt. There is nothing about works of grace that we earn more of God's love or just make sure we seal the deal. Jesus hasn't done 90% and he's waiting on us to do the other 10. He's done it all. And so we get to rest in that. We get to receive it as a free gift. We get to rejoice in it. Thank you, God, for this amazing gift of grace. Thank you that you've taken the whole cup, all of the contents of that cup have been drunk by you. I don't get any of it. Thank you, God. Amazing, amazing gift. And so I just want to maybe end with this. Like, How do you guys know? How do we know? How do I know if we're resting in the grace of God? Well, there's a, this statement, I didn't come up with it, but it's a helpful diagnostic for us. It, it just says this, that in the gospel, there is nothing we could do that would make God love us more, and there is nothing we have done or will do that would make God love us less. We know we're resting in the finished work of Jesus when that is becoming more true for us. 
when we're living in the light, that there's nothing that we could do to make God love us more. There's nothing we can add. There's nothing we can do to become more lovely to Him. There's nothing we can do that He would uh, give us His affection. It's, it's, it's secured in Jesus. And there's nothing we could do to make Him love us less. Because Christ has paid the price, and His payment is a sufficient payment. He didn't leave anything left for us to pay. And so we can rest in that. Are we resting in Jesus? And um, I started this morning by talking about it as well. I just want to end with it as well. This is just a favorite song. We're actually going to close by singing it as well, as it turns out. The third verse talks about the good news of this empty cup. And it says this. My sin, oh, the bliss of that glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, all of it. My sin, not in part, but in whole, but the whole is nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, oh, my soul. You don't bear your sin anymore. That's the good news of this empty cup that Jesus has taken it. So I'm going to call the band up. We're going to pray together. We're going to just respond in thanksgiving. Thank you, Lord. Our cup is empty. There's nothing left for us to drink. You're not going to top it up with a bit more. It's been paid. It's been paid. And if you're a believer, you stand here this morning free from the curse of sin. And we get to rejoice as we rest in our peace with God, our communion with God. We get to rest in the finished work of Jesus for us in the gospel. Let's pray together. Jesus, we just want to thank you together this morning for this amazing gift toward us. That you have come and you got on uh, the cross yourself as a holy God. You stepped in the gap for us and took uh, the penalty for sin onto yourself. That you have borne the wrath of God for our sin so that we don't have to uh, have that. You've taken the penalty. You've been our propitiation. You have drunk that cup. And we want to say thank you, God. Thank you for this gift of grace toward us this morning. I pray for uh, those of us uh, entering to our faith journey or, or uh, restarting it or wherever we at, that you would help us, Lord, just believe in this finished work of Jesus on the cross, the, the perfect empty cup that we get to uh, look at and know that we are forgiven, that our sin has been taken care of, that we are clean that there is no more shame or guilt to carry because Christ carried it for us, our perfect man of sorrows. God, we pray that as our hearts doubt, you would convince us again of where we stand as we remember this cup. We pray, God, that you would help us worship you as we say, oh, it is so well with our soul, God. It is well. You've taken it all away from us. You've borne the cost yourself in our place, and we worship you, and we respond to you with great uh, thanks and worship. Thank you for your gift of grace towards us this morning.